And the disciples were so, he was so beloved with them that they gave him the nickname Barnabas, which was son of encouragement. Here's a man who's an example. And the, tr- the thing with giving back in that day is that giving was done more publicly than we have giving that's done today. Our giving is a little more private. Theirs was a little more public. And it's hard to keep the story down. If you sell a piece of land and you give the whole, the whole thing to the church, people find out about that, and they know things about that. It just kind of comes to the surface. And so it did. Ananias and Sapphira were aware of it. So, now Ananias, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet, just as Barnabas had done. But it was under a whole different set of circumstances. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and you've kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Wow. What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but you've lied to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. Ooh, that's pretty big. He fell down and he he died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then some young men came forward and they wrapped up his body and they carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. This is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen! And he put exclamation point there. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Wow. Wow, have things changed. This has to be one of the harshest portions of Scripture in the New Testament. And it causes a lot of folks to struggle and to wonder and to ask questions about God and about ministry, about the apostles, about the church even. When you read this Scripture, last week we know that we couldn't be sure whether it was bitter envy or selfish ambition or status or power or good old just plain old greed or a combination of all those motives that motivated Ananias and Sapphira, but we do know a lot about their sin. And we need to talk about their sin and point it out again, because if you read this passage, you may not, it may not jump out at you in the beginning, but it, it should jump out at you. This was, this was their sin. They deliberately conspired. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't by mistake. It wasn't by oversight. They deliberately conspired to deceive the church and its leadership. They deliberately presented themselves as someone they were not. They weren't surrendered in faith. They weren't willing to trust. They weren't willing to be generous. But they wanted to be seen that way. And they deliberately misrepresented themselves and their gift. 
And then they deliberately presented their gift as something it was not. It was not complete. They had said it was complete. They wanted people to consider it complete. They wanted, it was devoted to God, but they took. It was not complete. And they deliberately took for themselves, they deliberately stole what they had devoted to God, and then they bold-faced lied about all this to the church, leadership, and to God. This seemed like a white lie. It seemed like it was just not a big deal when you first read it. And you're wondering how God could act so severely and quickly. And at least it comes off that way. But it wasn't just a little occasion. It was a big deal. So giving becomes sin when you deliberately conspire to deceive others, including God, in order to get what you want. If you're dabbling in those areas, I'm telling you, that's just a road for destruction. That's a road for broken relationships. There's no need to do that in the kingdom of God. If you deliberately do that, then you're deliberately trying to hide your selfishness and your self-serving agenda under a cloak of generosity. You deliberately give to get, and getting and taking is your real priority, not giving. And, and, and then your giving is going to be sin. So let's not do that. It teaches us that. But we need to understand what was really going on with Ananias and Sapphira in this passage. Well, then there's another point that we made last week. Giving becomes sin when a, be, when a believer takes for himself or herself what is devoted to God. Either what they've devoted to God or what is devoted to God. God has placed so many gifts and blessings into our hands as his sons and daughters. In faith, we are to give him what he asks for. We've been bought with a price. And we're to give him what he, we have determined in our heart to give. We have a choice, and so we can determine that. But if we determine it, we are to give it. Don't deliberately hold back portions of it and then act like you're giving all. Because that leads you down the wrong path. And the evil one begins to get strongholds, and he's filling your heart instead of the Spirit filling your heart. You're going the wrong direction. We're to simply trust Jesus, be honest with him. And we're to and be honest as we grow in grace and in the grace of giving. We're never going to be perfect in that, but we're to be honest and trustful. So he's asking us not to be perfect, but he is asking us to trust him and to be honest and to be growing. He is asking us to do that. And you know you can have great relationships with people without them being perfect, right? As long as they're honest and they're trusting and they're willing to grow. So I hope you took time last week to, to really get into the Old Testament because we looked at the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 6 and 7. I hope you read that because it really does dovetail to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. But this morning, we've got to move on. We've got to move on to our third point. We all agreed from Acts 5 that Ananias and Sapphira sinned, right? And their sin was pretty horrible sin. But, here's the big question. You ready? And you can write it in your notes if you want to. Didn't Jesus just die on the cross only weeks before, once and for all, sin? Didn't he? He did, didn't he? Amen. Didn't God lay on him the judgment that was for us and our sin? Didn't he lay it upon Jesus as a sacrifice? Yeah, he did. Aren't we in the time of grace now 
Because we always say, man, we're in a time of grace now. We're in the proverbial time of the church. We're in the year of Jubilee now uh, until Christ returns his second time. So what's going on here? And when you narrow it down, what we're really asking is, and I love this question, if Jesus paid the price for our sin, why do you and I still suffer the consequences of our sin? Isn't that what we're really asking? If Jesus paid the price, why am I still suffering the consequences of my sin? I've accepted his sacrifice on my behalf. I'm forgiven. I'm freed. I'm washed clean. But does that mean that it removes all consequences and all consequences from future sin? See, we've got to talk about some things. How does God use, and he does use, temporal consequences, temporal consequences, to save us from eternal consequences? You know there are two different things. We have to talk about the area of consequences. Because we still are going to suffer and experience those consequences. And sometimes when we do, we doubt that God is really forgiving, or that he's fair, or that he's good. But he is, and he's wonderful. Ephesians 1.7 tells us this plainly. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. The good news is, folks, Jesus paid the price for our sin. It's paid. We'll no longer be accountable for that penalty for sin. But yet, in many ways, you and I will still be suffering the consequences of sin. Can you buy that with me? I hope you can, because I'm going to talk about this as we go through consequences. We're still going to suffer under this. For example, a murderer or drug dealer, I've had them in my family, maybe you have too, they come to Christ while they're in jail and incarcerated. Does that mean that they're released from prison the next day? No. No, I have had some that have accepted Christ and claimed they're following Jesus. They've been there a long time, a long time, right? He or she's still going to experience the consequence of their past sin. A follower of Christ, if you lie at work and you just screw up and lie or you take something from the company that you shouldn't take, that happens at times, or say that you fall into a, a bad or wrong relationship with a co-worker, Right? You can lose your job over that. You can lose your career, even your marriage, even after you confess that sin and you forsake that sin, the consequence of that sin remains. Amen. Say amen to that. Amen, that happens all the time. Some consequences can be resolved and overcome. That's true, right? But some cannot. Coming to Jesus doesn't automatically erase the temporal effects of sin, Rather, our salvation guarantees that you and me are not going to face the eternal consequences of our sin. Do you get that? We're not going to face it. But sometimes it does cover those temporal consequences. But not always. Romans 6.23 states this, the consequence of sin is death. We think we can just sin and it's no big whoop to do. Because, you know, God is the Lord of all and he's not doing much about it. So I can just do it and get away with it. It's not true because God has told us plainly the consequence of sin is death. It's so weird that we would dabble with it. But we do. 
As sinners, we deserve to be eternally separated from God in His holiness. As sinners, on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin with His own blood. He who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf. That's what Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Only on the basis of Christ's perfect sacrifice are you or I as believers no longer under God's condemnation. But because of it, we are no longer under God's condemnation. Romans 8 is true. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But when you and I who are followers of Christ experience consequences for sin, it's not because we're under God's condemnation or under his wrath or under his retribution. No, Isaiah 53.10 proclaims that Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself. He paid the price. However, even believers in this life will still experience the consequences of sin. And we've got to be real about that and accept that. And these consequences really do fall in four different categories. So we're going to talk about them today. Because you have to talk about them when you talk about this stuff. And so these are the four categories of sin. Here's the first one. Universal consequences. Those are real. Some of sin's consequences are experienced perpetually by every human being on earth because we are all children of Adam. Man, every time I pull weeds in my garden, I gripe at Adam. Because it was a curse that befell mankind. You tell me, which person of you can grow or try to have a great lawn or a great landscape and not pull weeds and fight weeds all the time? We're all fighting them. It's a lot of work. It's the consequence. It's the universal consequence of sin. And we're not exempt just because we know Jesus. We all face that. We all face natural disasters. Some of us have lost trees in the last windstorm. So it's given us opportunity to exercise and to help others exercise and to spend time and resources cutting them down and taking them to the dump. Right? We all get sick. People are sick even this morning and aren't here today. We all grow old. Ooh, is that, a, is that bad? I haven't gotten old. Oh, golly, have I got old. And some of you are getting old, too. Look at Brock's T-shirt. <laughs> He's laughing back there. He's getting older. Look at it. <laughs> Ask him how old he is. Anyways. Right? And here's the other part of it. We're all going to physically die someday of something. You know what? I remember when I first started confronting death. I just go, this isn't right. This is not right. Why is this godly person dying? Because it's the way it is in this world. And they're going to go be with Jesus. And God's taking them home. It is okay. Right? As sinners living in a sinful world, there's no avoiding these consequences of original sin. They're here. We're, God is saving us out of a broken world. You know, he's doing what has to be done to deliver us and save us. But we're the ones who brought sin into this experience. And now he's trying to clean it up for us because he loves us so much. We're saved by grace. We're sinners saved by grace. But we're also going to deal with unavoidable consequences from original sin. So that's universal consequences, but there are also natural consequences. And, and we try to dodge these some a little bit, but there are consequences 
because we live in a world of cause and effect, right? Where the law of sowing and reaping is in full effect. Sowing and reaping is real. I just want to say that. Because even me, I struggle with it sometimes and think, I'm not going to reap what I sow, but I am. And you are too. And even Jesus said it was true. Sowing and reaping is in full effect. Some of our sin's consequences, some of sin's consequences are kind of built in and they're guaranteed no matter if we're saved or unsaved. The Bible warns about sexual immorality. If you commit that sin against, that sin, if you commit it, it's going to be against your own body. And it's whether you're a believer or non-believer. You are bringing harm and, and bad effect to your own body. And that's guaranteed by God Almighty, the Creator. The Bible says in Proverbs 6.27, Can a man or woman scoop fire into their lap without their clothes being burned? I've actually done that. No! You can't do it. And pretty soon you're going to have your pants off and be running around because you're burnt. So I'm just telling you, it doesn't work. I could tell you the whole story, but I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but man on fire i was on fire it was not good if you steal something you should expect to get caught and face the natural consequences that the sin of of theft brings and consequences can pile up aren't they they're kind of like the basketball player who turns the ball over then because he's hacked he fouls the guy and then because he's more hacked he cusses and so what happens it goes from a turnover to you're going to get at least two points, and now you get a technical, and it's you get to shoot two, and they get the ball. We do that to ourselves with sin sometimes, and the consequences pile up. You speed. You know you're going to get a bad ticket because you're going way, way over the speed limit. And then you think, well, I can dodge the cops because I got this fast car, but it don't work. And so now you went from a speeding ticket to now having your license suspended or revoked and possibly even going to jail. It just adds up and piles up. Do you see? Natural consequences will do that. You reap what you sow. Come on. Some of us are facing some really bad consequences, and we're doing that, and they're piling up, and we're blaming God for it, or we're blaming other people for it. And we need to own it and say, it's me. Now, you need maybe help and support and encouragement, but until you own it, you can't get through it. Right? Like the kid who just won't learn to drive the speed limit until they have to pay the ticket themselves and then spend a night in jail. Then they learn. Amen? I hope I'm not saying anything that somebody's actually, they're like going, dude, how'd you know? I just experienced that. We try to avoid the natural consequences. We try to pretend they're not natural but they are natural. Galatians 6, 7 through 9 states this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man or person will reap what he or she sows. You see that? We're mocking God when we try to pretend. Uh, we're not going to do that. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary, Paul says, in doing good for at a proper time. We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We will. So endure, and so does the Spirit. 
You know, we know with Ananias and Sapphira, Peter asked, how has your heart been so filled by the devil, by Satan? Well, because he was sowing. They were sowing to that direction. It didn't happen all at once. It happened one step at a time. And they weren't dealing with their sin, and they weren't confessing it, and they weren't letting others pray for them, and they weren't growing in humility. They weren't growing in the Spirit and in the truth. It just happens one step at a time. So all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're pretty filled, and now you're doing stuff. They were doing that, and they were avoiding the reaping and sowing reality. Well, there's a third category for our, circum- our consequences, in it, and, and some consequences are instructional consequences. Sometimes God allows some of the, our sin consequences to remain to teach us to live lives in holiness, to depend upon his grace, and to help us not forget the nature of sin. Instructional consequences. You know in the Old Testament, old Jacob walking around with a limp, that limp reminded him of his own sin and his own mistrust of God and his own struggle with the Lord and God as being good. You and I, we, some of us have limps because of that too. Right? It reminds us. Those are instructional consequences. Sin is a serious enough problem for God that he had to send his son into the world to die for it. So we can't take it lightly. And so in the face of sin's consequences, we've got to humble ourselves and seek God's kingdom and righteousness all the more. All the more. When Ananias and Sapphira, when they were disciplined for their sin, it was instructive for the church that had just began. They went, oh my gosh, this is for real. We've got to be careful. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events, right? This is for real. We have to be careful. And we have to honor God in our giving and in our serving. It's too bad that that they had to be the instructional ones, but it happens, doesn't it? And we have to learn from it and be better because of it. But it's, look, this story is not as bleak as it appears. It gets... It gets better. But the final category for consequences is disciplinary consequences. Some of sin's consequences are the result of God treating his children as a father. And thank God he does. There's a difference between the penalty of sin and discipline for sin. As God's children, we experience his discipline, and it's designed to draw us back and get us on the right path. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 says this, My son... Or daughter, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Don't lose heart when he disciplines you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son and daughter. Man, you and I have disciplined our kids. We still love them. and love them dearly. And because they mess up and they have to be disciplined does not take away their place in our heart and in our life. They're dear for us. You know, you'd ask me, you know, okay, which one you want to throw back of my seven kids? Some of them have been rougher than others at times. Well, I don't want to throw any of them back because I love them. It didn't make a difference. Well, God is a better father than I am. And he still loves you. 
And he loves me, even when we're wayward, because we're all wayward at times. We're all wayward at times. And you notice this, how many children does God have that undergo discipline? Every one of us. Every one of us. God's purpose in allowing us to experience discipline and the disciplinary consequences of sin, it's true to his nature, and it's perfect. Because he's good, he disciplines. And he does that in order that we might live a good life and be blessed, in order that we might know his holiness and be holy ourselves. God's good. And so he, he steps up and disciplines. The church at Corinth is another example for you and me about the example of Christians facing dip, uh, disciplinary consequences. And remember, their situation was around the taking of the Lord's Supper. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.30. He says, This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That means you have died because you did not show respect and honor in the way you took the Lord's Supper. Church, that's for real. And that even happens today. You know, it does. And we're to honor the Lord in those things. So God allows us, God allows us to experience some of these, these temporal consequences of sin to show his love for us. And if God never disciplined his strained children, he wouldn't be a good father, right? So if you were never disciplined or never suffered the consequences for any of your wrong actions, you and I would never learn right from wrong. Because we learn more by our mistakes oftentimes than we do by the things we do right. We need that in our lives. Well, believe it or not, I'm coming to the conclusion, you have those four categories. But remember, this conclusion will not be too short. Uh, because it's important to note some things. What do you see when you read and look at this passage this morning? Think about that. What do you see? Do you see more harshness on God's part and wonder why and how he could respond this way? Or have you come to see and do you see more grace and love in this encounter and grace and love in the church in this encounter than you did before. Can you see God's love and grace in this? I want you to see some things that I saw as I looked at this passage and why I do and told you that this actually has more grace and love in it than you imagined. Consider this, and you can write these points in your conclusions or wherever. God was in Ananias and Sapphira's life and he was paying attention to the process and steps that they were taking and allowing the evil one to so fulfill their heart, so much so that they could justify stealing from him and lying about it to everyone around. Do you notice that? God had not left Ananias and Sapphira. God had not abandoned them. He loved them. He cared about them. Do you believe that God loves a, a person who's on death row for murder and probably did, but if they turn their heart over to Jesus, Lord and Savior, and repent of their sins, do you believe God forgives them and loves them? You better believe he does. And does he love them any less than he loves you? No. He loves you both. Wow, that's a little, that's, that's kind of hard to think about sometimes because we think sometimes we earn our love. No. 
God has chosen to love us, and that's why we're lovely. And God was in their lives, and he loved Ananias and Sapphira. He wanted more for them. He wanted more for them. So he was there and paying attention. He's a good father. That shows a lot of love. God intervened. Here's the second thing. God did not just sit back, but he intervened. He intervened, and you know he did more than just this time. Mostly... God, if you read throughout Scripture, you find out that God was trying to get the, the hearts and the minds and the attentions of people that were going to be judged over and over again for years. We don't know how long they were in the church. We don't know how old these folks were. We don't know how long God's been trying to get their attention. But he was trying to get their attention. And he intervened finally through Peter. He actually through his Holy Spirit gave Peter the gift of the word of knowledge, and he told Peter so that Peter could reveal to Ananias and Sapphira their scheme, and that God knew about this scheme, to con that they conspired together to deceive everyone with their gift. God told another human being in hopes that as they shared it, it would soften and open the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. It's pretty huge for God to do that. Ananias and Sapphira had rejected God's leading and guidance and God's word. They were rejecting it, and they had let Satan move so far into their lives that they were kind of seared and callous to the Spirit. They weren't listening, and you can see that, don't you? And God sent somebody to look them bold face in the, in the eye and say, No, you're lying. You're not telling the truth, and this is coming straight from God, and here's the deal. And God did it because he loved them. And Peter participated because he was committed to loving them too. Wow. God and Peter, then number three, God and Peter then confronted Ananias and Sapphira with the truth, and they gave them another opportunity to confess, to repent of their grave sin, to seek mercy and forgiveness. Do you see that? It was kind of a brief opportunity, but it was an opportunity. Has anybody ever confronted you with sin growing up or with your parents when you really did something wrong and they finally just bring it to your light and then you just go, man, you're right. Just immediately. You just go, you're right. I am so sorry. I was wrong. I repent of that. I'm going to give back what I stole. I'm going to do this or that or whatever. Doesn't their penalty usually go a lot lighter for their sin and your penalty to you a lot lighter when you confess and you come clean right off the bat? It shows your heart is soft. It shows you're teachable. It shows you're willing to repent. Ananias and Sapphira were not. They weren't. But neither of them chose to take the opportunity to respond and to repent when the opportunity was there. They could have lived. I really believe they could have. But their hearts were too hardened at this point. They were still believers, I believe, but their hearts were hardened. So finally, number four, not wanting Ananias or Sapphira to suffer eternal consequences due to their hard heart, because their heart could become completely hardened. They could completely reject and walk away from the Lord. They could begin to follow the evil one in the ways of the world and be lost and not saved. So what happens? He allowed Ananira, Ananias and Sapphira, God did, to suffer temporal consequences. 
physical death so they wouldn't experience eternal consequences. It was actually merciful. You're going to pay. You're gonna, it's going to happen now. The discipline's going to be swift, but you'll be with me in eternity, but your life is over. Wow. That's pretty gracious. And the church, number five, the church, instead of disowning them, what did the church do? The church showed them dignity and mercy and grace in burying them and burying them next to one another. Wow. And the church did learn. Now, when you look at it from that perspective, does this seem to be just a harsh passage of Scripture with a harsh reality? Or does this seem to be a Scripture that teaches us something and shows God's love and grace even with people who are bound and determined to go off the cliff? He rescued them before they did. He rescued them before you did. Praise the Lord for his goodness. Praise the Lord for his goodness. He allows us to experience temporal consequences of sin for our own good. But he has saved us from the eternal consequences of sin. Jesus did pay the penalty of our sins, so we'll never experience the second death, which Revelation 20:14 says is the lake of fire. We will not experience it. Believers in Christ are promised that the curse and the consequences of sin will be completely removed one day. Nothing will hurt or destroy him at all my holy mountain, Jesus said in Isaiah 11, 9. Now, now God's people know the power and authority of Jesus, that his power and authority is there both for blessing but also for holiness. And now they are more mindful of those things. Should that scare you and me and cause us to shrink back from his presence? No. But it should inspire us to be careful, to honor, to respect him. It should guide us to trust him more and to know he's real. The great fear that the church and all who heard of these events in our passage, it didn't stop people from coming to Jesus. I don't know if you noticed that, because you'll go to the next passage and you'll find out the church exploded with growth. And they all knew about it. So it didn't cause that to not go forward. But it did teach some people some things, didn't it? Nevertheless, it says in verse 14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number because the gospel was real. The gospel was real. I want you to stand with me as we close in prayer. Praise the Lord. This is a heavy passage, but I hope you see the grace and love of God in it. And I hope that you are inspired more to come to the Lord honestly. Come to the Lord with a teachable heart to trust him and to be inspired to his grace and his love on your behalf. He is a loving, heavenly father, but he's for real. And, and you can't love anybody without boundaries. If there are no boundaries and no one has boundaries, no one feels love. You got that, right? It doesn't work. So if you have boundaries and you live within those boundaries, I can trust you and I can experience your love. But if there, is, if there isn't anything and your word doesn't mean anything and you don't mean anything, then your love doesn't mean anything. God loves us. And his boundaries and his discipline proves it. 
He's committed to the long haul with us. But he understands our hearts. Amen? Let's accept him. Let's receive him today. Lord Jesus, we just ask you to bless us as a church. Bless us, God. May we have a holy and reverent fear for you, Lord. Not one that causes us to shrink back, but one of us to feel sure and secure and inspired. Because you love us. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be your sons and your daughters. Thank you, God, that you are so gracious and kind. Thank you that you save us from eternal consequences by disciplining us with temporal consequences. We're so grateful and thankful for that. And that you are wise and all-knowing, and you know what has to be done when it has to be done, and we can trust you in that. So we bless you this morning for this passage, and we ask you, God, to continue to convince those that are still struggling that you love them. And if they're still struggling with the harshness of this passage, that they would come to see that there's more that meets the eye than what's said in, in these few words in this passage. Because you, Lord, are good, and you've proved it over and over again. So we love you, Lord Jesus, and we just want to say thank you again for all that we have in Christ. Help us, God, to walk by faith this next week as we go. Help us to find rest from our big week of service, but help us to continue to not grow weary in doing good, knowing that we'll reap a harvest in due, due time if we don't give up. So, Father, bless us and unite us and take us forward this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen.